Hi, this is Henry calling from London, England, and I've been working on my Scott Detcho impression, so you might not know whether it's me talking or him when the podcast begins. This podcast was recorded at... It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm stunned. Uh, it's 12, 12.35 Eastern on Friday, September 25th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Okay, here's the show, and me, or Scott. That is awesome. <laughs> Bravo. Should I just do the rest in like an offbeat British accent to, to counterbalance it or just plow forward? <laughs> oh, man. Hey there. It's uh, the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm actually Scott Detrow. I cover the presidential campaign. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House. All right. I'm going to reset here and move forward. Um, we actually... As you probably know, listening to this podcast, have a lot of serious things to talk about this week. Uh, President Trump said this week that he might not follow through with a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. And that is obviously a very important thing to talk about in detail. And let's start there with Franco. Tell us what the president said and what the context is for these repeated comments. Yeah, he's repeated this a few times this week. You know, first uh, in response to reporters asked whether, you know, win, lose or draw, whether he'd accept the outcome. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transferal? We want to have get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very trans we'll have a very peaceful there won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. He has, you know, repeatedly for months uh, kind of railed against mail-in voting, and he has only just kind of picked up that attacks this week, even after his own White House kind of tried to walk it back. Uh, the president again doubled down yesterday, speaking to a few of us reporters outside on his way to Charlotte. Um, and just continues to say that he does not have faith in the election. He does not think that it could be a trustworthy election. And that's really that's really significant considering that so many experts have said that there is no uh, meaningful uh, evidence of fraud in mail-in voting. Right. And, and the context here is that polls have consistently over and over again shown former Vice President Joe Biden with a lead over President Trump nationally and in most of the key states that will decide this race. It's also, uh, we cannot underscore enough, one of the main reasons that American democracy has been so strong and stable compared to other countries is the fact that by and large, the country accepts that elections are free and fair and that across the board, going back to you know George Washington and John Adams, our presidents have peacefully transferred power and peacefully left when they've been voted out of office. And, and these repeated statements really start to you know wear away at those norms that we just take as a given here. You know, I'm not a historian, but it is almost unprecedented the level of attacks that this president um, has laid against the upcoming election. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's not this week. It's been for months, even years. I mean, since 2017 has been kind of railing against the upcoming election and kind of creating this, uh, these questions about uh, the authenticity of the election. Even the last election, you remember, he made these, um, you know, controversial statements, you know, baseless attacks about, you know, illegal voting. It's, it's, uh, it is a major issue. 
Right, because even though he won the Electoral College, he lost the uh, popular vote by a significant margin, and he tried to say, well, that was only because of voter fraud, which was never proven a false statement. Claudia, given all of this, what has the reaction been on Capitol Hill? So on Capitol Hill, we saw quite a bit of daylight between Republicans and the president on this. Quickly, it seemed to be a wave of members here who were issuing statements, talking to reporters, letting them know that there will be a peaceful transition of power. Among them was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Both said, we will see that peaceful transfer. And we saw other Republicans also speak out. For example, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. This is the lone Republican who voted for uh, Trump's uh, removal during the impeachment trial. He said that it is fundamental to democracy that there's a peaceful transition of power. He said this in a tweet soon after uh, the president made this statement. He said, any suggestion that the president might not respect this constitutional guarantee is both unthinkable and unacceptable. And and now, Claudia, you have, there's been so many examples where the president says something really controversial or something that really goes against democratic norms or so many other examples. And there's like this wide range of Republican response, particularly in the Senate of, oh, I didn't see that to to really making a point to to disagree. Where does this fall in in terms of the different levels of Republican response that you've seen to Trump statements over the years? This is probably the strongest reaction. If I had to compile all of the times we've chased Republicans through the hallways and they've dodged questions, they've uh, not responded at all, or they might just kind of uh, blow off the remarks and not take them seriously. This time they wanted to be clear, it seemed, that they didn't stand with any kind of uh, line of this kind of thinking. All across the board, we were hearing reactions. And I do have to say this is a buildup over the past year where we see these Republicans more and more speaking up and um, against the president. And you can see the daylight clearly between them when ideas like this come up, when he expresses ideas like this. Though, of course, as we'll talk about the second part of the podcast, there is often a wild disconnect between that and the fact that they uh, support his legislative agenda and support at the moment the push to get a new Supreme Court justice on the bench in the in the next month or so. Again, that's a conversation for the second half of the podcast. Franco, have you seen any signs that this is a feeling shared by the rest of the Trump administration, that there's any wheels of the of the administrative branch of the federal government turning to to possibly not respect uh, an outcome? Again, we don't know what the outcome of the election would be, but to follow through on this this early uh, threat. You know, being at the White House yesterday, you're hearing contradictory statements from officials. Take uh, Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. She was asked about this controversy yesterday during the briefing, and she really did her best to try to quell that uproar, saying repeatedly that the president would accept a free and fair election, that the president would uh, accept the will of the people. 
But, you know, as you know, we've noted just, you know, an hour later, the president was kind of undercutting those comments. So I think it has made a lot of work for uh, his staff and for his administration, because I think they're trying to kind of have it uh, both ways. But clearly the president kind of making this argument that he does not feel that the current system is a free and fair election. But again, uh, you know, this is not shown. And just another example, his own FBI director testified uh, on the Hill yesterday, yesterday, Christopher Wray, and he emphasized that historically we have not seen any kind of coordinated national voter fraud effort in a major election. You know, uh, that's contradicting the president almost exactly. I feel like I'm the walking lawfare or Atlantic article in this conversation, but I think the other important context to point out here is that, you know, let's take let's take this 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 threat to the extreme of if Joe Biden were to win the election and President Trump were to say, I'm not leaving, it's not necessarily up to President Trump, right? Congress would weigh in. Claudia was talking about how Congress is responding. The federal courts would weigh in. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts would decide who he's going to swear in. Yeah. And we can also add, for example, the number two Republican in the Senate, John Thune of South Dakota. He was asked specifically, will Republicans stand up to the president if he decides to reject the election results, if they don't go his way? And he said yes. So there's already this kind of thinking among even Republicans that they may need to be put in this position and stand up to the president if it comes to it. All right, Franco, uh, we are going to let you go for the next segment, but uh, you're going to come back for Can't Let It Go. So start working on those zingers and jokes right now. You know, you can never you can never be too ready. I wanted to try to say something with a uh, thank you, British Scott. You know, I didn't, I didn't, thank you. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, British Scott. Oh, no problem, Franco. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Claudia. Uh, Hang tight. Um, You and I are going to talk more about this Supreme Court confirmation battle after a quick break, and we'll be joined by Nina Totenberg. Support for the NPR Politics Podcast and the following message come from Indeed. Indeed is here to help when small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and every hire is critical. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because they get you the best people fast. You only pay for what you need, can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com NPR. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Radio Ambulante is NPR's only Spanish-language podcast. Listen for stories you won't hear anywhere else told by the voices that make Latin America come alive. Each week, we bring you another remarkable story that will surprise and move you. Radio Ambulante, new episodes every Tuesday. Listen and subscribe. We are back, and now we are joined by Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi there, Scott. So today, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state at the U.S. Capitol She is the first woman in U.S. history to be given that honor. And even though that's embarrassingly overdue, it feels fitting that it's her to have that honor. And according to our own Sue Davis, she's also the first Jewish person to lie in state. I went down to the Supreme Court with my family last night to to see her in 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 you know lying in honor on the steps of the court. Just the crowds there the last few nights have been have been really moving to see and the amount of people in this country who were who were touched by Ruth Bader Ginsburg who wanted to say goodbye to her. What what from this week has stood out to you, Nina? Well, I have to say that's the one part about her dying that I didn't anticipate. 
I anticipated the maelstrom, the firestorm, the partisanship. <laughs> I expected all of that. Mm-hmm. But then on the night that she died, before she was e- her body was brought to lie in repose at the court, I looked at the TV as I was getting ready to do something on NPR. I don't remember what. By the time I'm looking at the TV and it's dark, there are hundreds of people there with flowers and candles and singing, singing Amazing Grace. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. This begins a confirmation process. It's it's well underway already now. President Trump has said he will announce his nominee for her successor tomorrow night. We will be putting out a podcast when that announcement is made. But but Nina, tell us a little about what we need to know about the women who, who seem to be the finalists. Well, I would say that clearly Amy Coney Barrett, a judge on the Seventh Circuit, seems to be the leading contender. I think she's been at the White House not once but twice. Um, there's another judge who has some appeal to the president. Uh, her name is Barbara Lagoa. She's on the 11th Circuit, but she's been on the 11th Circuit less than a year. Amy Coney Barrett's been on the on her in her judge job for three years and has a pretty extensive record. Judge Barbara Lagoa um, has only written seven opinions, and of those seven, there's one that was just you know not terribly significant opinion at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. They don't have a clear record with her, but what they do have are some political attributes that are very attractive. She's, her parents fled Cuba when Fidel Castro, after Fidel Castro took over, she speaks, she's, so she's Latina, she speaks fluent Spanish, she's a Catholic conservative, and she's most important from Florida, a state that means a great deal to the president in the upcoming election. Mm-hmm. Claudia, this week began with a question about whether Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, would have the Republican support he needs to move forward quickly. We have talked a lot about the fact that this is the exact opposite approach that he took in 2016 when President Obama was in office and there was an opening. Uh, He he is moving forward, and it was notable that he really did shore up that Senate Republican support very fast. Yeah, that was pretty amazing how quickly that all came together. The question started already the weekend um, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. Within hours, um, we were hearing from Mitch McConnell and other Republicans about potentially filling this seat uh, this close to an election and now during an election with early voting going in several states at this time. Quickly, we saw folks like Romney and Gardner and Tillis say that they would support this plan to move forward with a nominee. For example, Romney said he was he was following um, following basically the rule of law to allow this to proceed. So right now, mm-hmm. it, it looks like they're on track to get this done pretty quickly, maybe even before Election Day. Typically, confirmations, you don't have even a hearing for a couple of months, six, eight weeks. So they're, you know, they have, what, 39 days left mm-hmm. before the election? Yeah, from Saturday. Uh, they're going to have to really rush this through. <laughs> they're going to have to really rush this through. And 
I, the Democrats really, there used to be not just the filibuster, but other procedural speed bumps that the Democrats could use to slow things down, but they don't exist anymore. So there's really not much Democrats to, can do. I mean, outside of the Senate, Democrats feel like they have a better than even chance at this point to win back control of the chamber starting next year. But over the next month, is there anything at all Democrats can do? It sounds like the answer is really no. They do admit that, that they're resigned to this is what Republicans are going to do, and they don't have a lot of tools at their disposal to slow this down. We did see some maneuvers already in the chamber of Democrats trying to slow down any kind of Senate business, even a continuing resolution, which needs to pass. This is what's going to keep the government's lights on because they run out of money come October. So they need to pass this stopgap measure by Wednesday to make sure the government remains funded. We don't go into government shutdown. And Democrats have even slowed that down. It's as if they're trying to slow down this entire freight train that's coming at them, and they're trying to slow down all legislation. This continuing resolution could have probably passed on the Senate floor this past week, but now it's being pushed to next week. And we're seeing other small maneuvers like that trying to slow down the Senate's business. Uh, One thing even Republicans have admitted when they've rushed through these confirmations in the past, I think uh, there's a record of perhaps 19 days in at least one case. Um, It's been with cooperation. And so Democrats want to make clear there isn't cooperation here. Nina, I just want to I want to end the segment bringing it back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, on Friday in a podcast, you were talking about, you know, how you've have you you've known her for so long and and you wrote a whole piece on this that really, you know, exploded all over the internet, but but I just want to tell you that I've been thinking all week about this this idea of of you and Ruth Bader Ginsburg early in both of your careers just having a, a long first conversation with each other that turned into this long conversation about constitutional law and just just to tell you, for me, I've been thinking about that all week and what a nice moment it is. And just, just you know, if, if somebody could take a time machine to that moment, I just think I think so many people would love to see it now. <laughs> well, it was an amazing thing because I was reading this brief in case that turned out to be the first case in which the Supreme Court said that you couldn't automatically prefer men over women in state law. And I didn't understand it. I, you know, I didn't know enough about constitutional law at the time to have any conception of how this would be under the 14th Amendment guaranteed equal protection of the law, which after all was enacted to protect former slaves, largely to protect former slaves. And so I flipped to the front of the brief and saw that it was written by a Rutgers Law professor named Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I called her, and I got an hour-long lecture I mean, it was just an amazing thing. I I staggered out of that phone booth. We had phone booths in those days. And I I was like a goose whose liver had been primed for foie gras, is the way I always put it. (laughs) I just wanted to add in that, um, God, your tributes, Nina, to Ginsburg last weekend, they just broke me multiple times. The obituary, (laughs) just thinking about it, I get emotional about this bond that you had with this iconic figure and how hilarious she was. We would see it as a public watching her, but you gave us a different insight into um, how joyful she was and how brilliant she was. And I really appreciated that. This is a very public radio moment. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died exactly a day after Cokie Roberts died a year ago. And so... 
my feelings that Friday night were so much about women's friendships and what they have meant to me over my life. And it was just particularly poignant because it was a year after Cokie died. So I, I think that's important for people to remember about both of these women, about Ruth Ginsburg mm-hmm. and about women in general. It's, it's not insignificant. I learned this Jewish teaching uh, the next day, which I had not known, because we dropped some food off at the Ginsburg apartment for the family um, the night that she died, but she, she was still alive then. I didn't see her, but she was still alive. And, but we knew that it was very difficult, and we dropped some food off, and as we were driving home, my husband and I, the sun was just setting, and I, I have learned that there's this Jewish teaching that says that on Rosh Hashanah, and Friday was Rosh Hashanah, the, new, the Jewish New Year on Rosh Hashanah, God saves the most righteous people who he keeps alive all year long until the, just before the New Year at sunset because the world needs them so much. And it just seemed fitting. Yeah. That's a great that's a great point to end on. Nina Totenberg, thank you so much for all your reporting and for joining us on the podcast a couple times this week. You're welcome. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, can't let it go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Showtime, presenting The Comey Rule, a two-night event series looking into the aftermath of the relationship between James Comey and Donald Trump and the 2016 election. The series provides a new perspective on real-life events, including the hacking of the DNC, Russian interference, and Hillary Clinton's emails. Emmy winners Jeff Daniels, Holly Hunter, and Brendan Gleeson star in The Comey Rule, September 27th and 28th, only on Showtime. With the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the president is hoping to fill the seat with a conservative judge. And evangelicals who play an important part in American politics have been waiting for this moment. But how did evangelicals become such a powerful force? Listen now to the history of evangelicals on the Throughline podcast from NPR. We're back. It is time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go. It's the part of the show where we talk about the things from the week we cannot stop thinking about politics or otherwise. Franco, you're back. Hi, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. What can you not let go of? Well, since I've been away, I couldn't let go British Scott. Uh, so I kind of want to you know, do that one. But I have. Um, have you heard about these Zoom nappings? No. No. So so check this out. These these students, college students, I would say very bored students with their classes mm-hmm. are in their Zoom classes. And what's happening is like they are faking being kidnapped during the class. <laughs> So they'll have they'll have groups of friends kind of storm in from behind and all of this is on Zoom and grabbing the kids and pulling them out of the class. They've gone very viral as you can imagine. They kind of started off on TikTok and gotten attention elsewhere. And you know you can just kind of imagine it's cracking up the students. Even sometimes the teacher is like, "What?" You know, and is like, "Did you see that? Do we need to call the police?" I mean, it's pretty obvious, but and 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 frankly, I just I can relate. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want to escape this life right now? And Zoom. I I, I, I would love to be kidnapped from most Zoom meetings that I'm in at this point in, in, in life. To be honest. 
I'm with you there. Every time I see my kindergartner, I'm like, man, he certainly would love to be kidnapped right now. <laughs> you should bring Zoom kidnappings to kindergarten Zoom and see how that goes. It <laughs> 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 might not go well for you. Don't exactly. <laughs> Uh, I'll go next. We we were talking about just the ceremony throughout the week honoring Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the formality of her lying in state in the Capitol, lying in honor outside of the Supreme Court. Uh, one particular moment really stood out to me that just happened. Uh, man goes up during the early part of the the lying in statuary hall, you know, standing in front of of the casket respectfully, then all of a sudden drops to the ground rifles off three or four push-ups, gets up, and then formally walks away. Like, wait, what? And it was her trainer, uh, Bryant Johnson, who, you know, over the years, her her workout regime became part of her iconic stature, and, and he was a big part of that. He was her stra- trainer for decades, and that is how he chose to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg today. I thought it was just so awesome. I loved it. I was here on Capitol Hill when that happened. So I ran out of my booth here and I was looking for him through the hallways. Bryant Johnson, wherever you are, I did a workout just looking for you. So he was very inspirational. (laughs) He would appreciate that. (laughs) Claudia, what can you not let go of? So this week we had a spectacular Tiny Desk concert by a little group, a little band some folks have heard about called BTS, the K-pop group, and it broke the internet, the NPR internet. The previous record was 780,000, and that was for our first day for Billie Eilish. This group, BTS, had 700,000 views in the first 15 minutes of the concert going online. By 9 a.m., it was hitting nearly a million views. And the first song they performed was Dynamite. This is their first song that they have performed all in English. So it was pretty spectacular. So amazing to see our tiny desk tradition continue, even in... Yeah, even in this environment. Exactly. Remotely. And people are loving it. And it also triggered this whole wave of giving. So thank you to all the listeners and the viewers who got to see the concert, too. Keep coming back. Maybe they'll bring like some zoo nappings to Tiny (laughs) Dex. Exactly. And British Scott can come and then we can have a workout (laughs) session with Brian Johnson. We can bring it all together. (laughs) On that thought, that's a wrap for today. Uh, our executive producer is Shirley Henry. Our editors are Mathani Maturi and Eric McDaniel. Our producers, Barton Girdwood and Chloe Weiner. Thank you to Lexi Shapittal, Elena Moore, Dana Farrington, and Brander Carter. And our intern is Kalyani Saxena. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the presidential campaign. I'm Claudia Grisades. I cover Congress. And I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. And a special thanks to our funder, The Little Market, for helping to support this podcast.